scripture is given by inspiration of God. And 2 Peter 1 tells us that one way that God did this was by giving words to holy men who then spoke or wrote those words. And Jesus himself referred to the holiness and the sacredness of God's word when he said, the scripture cannot be broken. What God says in his word will stand. I did some study on the transmission of God's word, and I have more material than I'll be able to share here this morning. I think I'm going to skip over a lot of that uh, and move on to a look at different Bible texts. And this might be a little bit tedious, but I think it's important, and I'd like if you would try to, to stick with me through this. It would be nice, at least it seems to me it would be nice, if we had the original passages that were penned by Moses and David and Isaiah and John and Paul and all the other Bible writers, but we don't. We don't have the original writings. The most original thing that we have is handwritten copies of handwritten copies of handwritten copies. So there is a significant human element in this. And obviously, not all of them are identical. Now, I'm going to refer for this part specifically to the New Testament because in general, in a large part, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. We have available about 5,000 Greek manuscripts of portions of the New Testament. So this would be the oldest thing that we have, 5,000 different manuscripts. And no two of those are identical. Now, that may raise some questions in our mind. What well, then, where do we start? What do we, where do we go from here? Now, many of those differences are minor, a misspelled word or a misplaced word or something. Some of the differences are more significant and actually do affect some meanings. And that, in one sense, um, accounts for some of the differences between translations because it depends which manuscript it was translated from. If you translate from this manuscript, you end up with this. If you translate from this manuscript, you will end up with this. Now, I heard a, uh, a Beachy minister one time, well, let me back up a little bit. So you have these different manuscripts, and probably most of you are, are aware that if you read, for example, the NIV Bible, there may be some verses that are included in the King James that are not included in the NIV Bible. And the reason for that is because of the manuscript that they translated from. I heard a Beachy minister one time refer to these missing text and very boldly declare he says the bible says that if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy god shall take away his part out of the book of life he says the translators of those versions have removed a part of god's word and god's going to remove their name from the book of life and the sentiment he expressed was that if you have any of these translations the best thing you could do is get rid of them as soon as possible 
Is he right? Does he have a basis for what he is saying? Is that a reason for concern? Well, the same passage says that if any man add unto the words of this book, God shall add unto him the plagues in this book. So how, we, how do we know if someone subtracted these verses or if someone else added these verses? Uh, where, where, do we, where do we go with that? Now, if the King James Version would be translated directly from the words of Paul and Matthew and Mark and Luke, it would be a standard. But it wasn't, and it isn't. Now, I mentioned that there's thousands of copies and manuscripts that have survived, and when scholars compare them, they can come up with a text that is closer to the original than any one of those. And I'll try to explain that. Let's suppose I had a a 10-page document, and I gave this document to 10 of you men, and I'd ask each of you to copy this document, either by hand or on a keyboard. Now, you're not going to scan it, okay? You're going to copy it word for word. Now, 10 pages, it would be likely that every one of you would make a mistake somewhere. And 10 pages of copying. Maybe one of you made a mistake on page one, another made a mistake on page two, another made a mistake on page three, another made a mistake on page four. So then if I took all 10 copies and compared page one, one copy had one mistake, but nine copies were identical, we'd have a pretty good basis for what the original said. Do the same for page two. Nine copies are identical. One copy is different. So if we look at all of those copies, you can probably come up with one that is more accurate than any one of those. You you follow what I'm saying there? And that gives us a basis for, I'd like to mention three different texts that were used for Bible translation. And the first of those is known as the Textus Receptus, which is Latin for the received text. And that's a pretty lofty title. It indicates that this is the text that was received from God. This is the text. And this text was compiled largely by a man named Erasmus back in the 1500s. He collected some Greek manuscripts, he compared them, and he compiled them into one, which he felt was a good text. It had some revisions over the time. This text um, has a few weaknesses. One, it was compiled quite hastily. He put it together, largely the work of one man, not entirely. It was edited later and revised, but it was pretty, pretty hastily compiled. And... This text was compiled from a relatively small number of Greek manuscripts. So he just, out of these ten copies, you know, maybe he had, I'll say for comparison's sake, maybe two or three that he compared to compile this text. And another negative or another weakness of the Textus Receptus is that Erasmus also referred to 
the Latin Vulgate, which was the Roman Catholic's Bible at that time, they had translated the, the New Testament from Greek into Latin, and then he translated it back from Latin into Greek. So you see there's an extra step in there which could um, allow for some extra air. So this was the text that was commonly accepted. It stood as a standard for hundreds of years. This is the text from which the King James Version Bible was translated. Then later, there was the Nestle-Allen text, developed over a period of years, from the late 1800s through the mid-1900s. And this text then goes back to some older manuscripts. You've probably, mostly of you, have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, these are some ancient manuscripts that were found long after the King James Version Bible was uh, published. And these manuscripts are actually older than some of the manuscripts from which the King James uh, was translated. And the Nestle Allen text uh, goes back to some of these older manuscripts. And these older manuscripts did not contain some of the verses that other manuscripts did, and that's the reason for some of the missing verses in some of our versions. This is a text that is commonly used for most modern versions that we have available today. The idea is that if the text is older, it's more reliable. Now, I might make a comment on these missing verses. Uh, there's people who have done, tried to do an objective study, and, and there are people who declare that if there are missing verses, that translators tried to remove some teaching from the Bible. But if you do a study, I think you will find that there is no teaching that has been removed from the Bible. For example, if a verse is missing from one gospel, that same teaching may be present in another gospel in that translation. So the teaching is there. It does not appear to me to be an intentional removal of Bible material. Well, then there's a third text, and this is more recently compiled, and it's based on the comparison of many more manuscripts. Now go back to these 10 men that I asked to copy, if you take all of them and compare all of them, this is a text that uses the widest base of manuscripts. The weakness of the received text is that it was based on a relatively few. And the Nestle-Allen text also is a, a smaller amount. But uh, this text includes uh, most of them. And it's very interesting that the majority text compares most closely to number one here, more so than number two. It's very similar to the Textus Receptus, which uh, would go back to, uh, to that uh, text that the King James was used from. Okay, so that's a look at the three texts. And I, I give this because... It's of interest, if you look at a Bible translation, which text was it translated from? The King James was translated from the Textus Receptus, most modern translations from the Nestle-Allen text, and then more recently we have the majority text available. Now I'd like to look at translation styles, which I think is also important as we understand Bible translation. 
And I'd like to ask the question, is translation a science or an art? Now, what do I mean by that? Science is something that is objective, it's precise, it's exact, it's mathematical, it's right, or it's wrong. For example, if I would ask a scientist to describe water, what would he tell me? Well, he'd tell me that water is two atoms of hydrogen combined with one atom of oxygen. And then you have water. It's not one atom of hydrogen. It's not three. It's two. Anything else is not water. You see, it's precise. It's right or it's wrong. There's one right answer. Suppose I would ask an artist to depict water. Now, art is not like science. Science is precise. Art, rather than being objective, it's subjective. It's more ambiguous. Many possibilities. So suppose I ask a photographer to take a picture of water, or more, I'll make it more precise, take a picture of a boy enjoying water. Now what comes to your mind when you think of that? What picture would you take? Uh, perhaps you would take a picture similar to that. You know, there's someone enjoying water. Or maybe you would take a picture like that. Now, I have to admit, if I'd be in that position, I don't think I would be enjoying the water very much. But some people would. Somebody else might take a picture like that. They are all, each one of these is a picture of someone enjoying water. So which one is correct? All of them? Could be. Or maybe none of them. Now, suppose when I asked for a picture of a boy enjoying water that I work for a water conditioning company, and that is what I wanted, a boy enjoying water. And those pictures, those other pictures, completely missed the idea. So now I'm coming back to this question. Is Bible translation an art or is it a science? So which would you say? Not sure where I'm going. Okay. Well, I'll make it easy. It's both. Obviously, there are elements of both. But generally, translators lean in one direction or the other. Some translations go more to the art aspect. Some go more to the science aspect. No two people translate identically. Um, if you know two languages, you understand that if you interpret from one to another, you change structure, you change sentence structure. Often there's no one word that means exactly what this one word means. And so there's, there's art involved. It can be translated incorrectly. So there's also a science involved. So there's a combination. So there's two different approaches used in Bible translation that use these two. The first is what we call formal equivalence. That's the term that's used. This would be more looking at it as a science. It's right or it's wrong. And this is also known as a word 
word-for-word translation. This style of translation operates from the premise that the most accurate way to translate something is to translate word-for-word and maintain sentence structure as much as possible. It considers translation to be more of a science. That's formal equivalence. Then there's also dynamic equivalence, which tries to translate thoughts. They look at a verse and say, what is this verse saying? And then try to express that thought rather than translating each word. It seeks to understand the message and then retell that message into English or whatever language you're translating. And that considers it to be more of an art. So formal equivalence tries to tell you what it says, whereas dynamic equivalence tries to tell you what it means. And there is a difference there. Dynamic equivalence will depend much more on the opinions of the translators or the interpreters. Their thoughts will definitely come through. At the same time, dynamic equivalence produces something that is easier to read. It uses our language. It uses our thought styles. It puts it into something that is easy to read. So while it may improve readability, it can uh, lose some of the majesty. So which is better? Dynamic or formal? When I moved to Romania, I barely understood any Romanian, a few expressions. Eventually, I got to the point where I would preach in Romanian, although it probably made people like Vasi cringe to hear me try it. But there was a time in between there when I understood the language fairly well but was not comfortable trying to preach in it. So I would preach in English, have it interpreted into Romanian, but I understood what the interpreter was saying. So I would express a thought, and sometimes he would interpret it in a way that did not express what I wanted to express. And so sometimes I would back up and, and say it again, say it in different words. And sometimes that got frustrating for the interpreter because he knew, I knew what he was saying, and he knew that we were, we were struggling there a little bit. I chose the words that I did for a reason. And sometimes if he said something different, I wasn't quite comfortable with that. That makes me wonder, how often does God look at a translation and say, but that's not what I said. That's not really what I said. So, is dynamic equivalence wrong? Not necessarily. Sometimes it can be an improvement. I think all translations use it to some degree. But generally speaking, I would say it's the weaker method of translation. Now, I'll just give a little bit of a footnote on this. If you use dynamic equivalence, where do you stop? How far do you go? And different translations take this to varying, varying degrees and varying extremes. I'll give you one of the, uh, an example from one of what I consider quite extreme. 
there is a, uh, an, a translation called the Cotton Patch Gospel. And this translation was written around 1970, so it's not terribly long ago, by Clarence Jordan for black people living in the South. And he wanted it to be something that black people could understand and identify with. So he tried to make it as pertinent for them as possible to the point where he even used places that they were familiar with along with terms and expressions that they knew something about. So in his New Testament translation, he does not talk about Jews and Gentiles. He talks about white people and black people. He does not talk about the city of Jerusalem. He talks about the city of Atlanta. And when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt, he says they took him to Mexico. This is dynamic equivalence to the extreme. And he even refers to Joseph as Joe. I'll I'll read you a couple verses from his translation uh, referring to the wise men uh, coming to uh, look for baby Jesus. This is his translation. Where is the one who was born to be governor of Georgia? We saw his star in the Orient and are come to honor him. This news put the governor and all his cronies in a tizzy. So he called a meeting of the big-time preachers and politicians and asked if they had any idea where the leader was to be born. In Gainesville, Georgia, they replied. And a little bit later, after the wise men had checked out, the Lord's messenger made connection with Joe in a dream and said, Get moving and take your wife and baby and highball it to Mexico. Then it dawned on Herod that he had been duped by the learned men, and he really blew his top. So you see what I'm saying about dynamic equivalence. How far do you go? Um, Where's a good stopping point? Well, let's move on here. Uh, And maybe this is what you were expecting me to to get at right at the beginning. Now I'd like to look at a few different versions and just give maybe some strengths and weaknesses of a few versions. And I'm going to be referring back to some of these things, which text they were translated from, and whether they lean more towards the dynamic equivalent or the um, literal equivalent. So the first, let's start with the King James Version. King James, known as the KJV, was also known as the Authorized Version, AV, same thing, Authorized Version, King James Version. This was uh, published in 1611, and it was published from the received text, the Textus Receptus, And this little box here over to the right, that needle, if it points to the left, like that does, that indicates a literal translation. And the farther it is to the right, the more it leans to a dynamic equivalent. And I'm I'm using this needle because this is a little bit subjective. I thought about giving it a number value, but I didn't want to do that because numbers are precise, and this is not a precise indication. It's just kind of a to give you an idea of of which way they lean. So the King James Version leans very heavily towards the word-for-word translation rather than translating thoughts. 
Some people say, well, the King James Version is the tried and true version that's been around for centuries. All these new translations, I just don't trust them. Well, did it ever occur to you that at one point the King James Version was new as well? And when that was a new version, a lot of people didn't like it. The NIV, we'll get to that later, became extremely popular very fast. The King James Version took the better part of 100 years before it was accepted by a lot of people. So it was new at one time as well. The King James is not the first English translation. There were other translations that preceded it, but they were often unclear. They were unauthorized. They were confusing. The message just was not clear, and uh, the King James cleared up a lot of that. Now, I think we need to recognize that a person's opinion will depend on his background. My opinion depends on my background. I grew up reading and memorizing the King James Version, and I have a high appreciation for it. If you would ask me to memorize a portion of scripture from another version, I would balk. You know, if I want to memorize, I want to memorize from the King James. Somebody who grew up using a different version will have a different perspective. Or someone who grew up with no exposure to the Bible at all will obviously not have the same appreciation for the King James Version. So not everybody might see the King James Version through the eyes that some of us do. I'll give you a few strengths of the King James Version. It is recognized as being accurate. Now, sometimes there may be some words you don't understand, but if you would understand the words, they're, for the most part, pretty accurate. It's familiar. It's beautiful. It's majestic. It's been known as the most grand and beautiful of all English versions. Here again, that's a subjective statement. You might not agree with that. It is one of the most literal translations in use translating word for word. It is one of the most accurate, provided we understand the language. Its style of language makes it easy to memorize. And it is universal. I found it interesting that Floyd was able to ask you to read a passage in unison. If we would had ten different versions in your hands, that would have been pretty difficult. But the King James Version is familiar. It's recognizable. Usually when people quote or read together, at least in our circles, uh, it's from the King James Version. I'm curious. I'm referring now to English versions. I'm not referring to Romanian or anything else. I'm referring to English versions. How many of you can quote the Lord's Prayer in any version other than the King James Version? in an English version other than the King James. Okay? Very few. It, it's universal. It's accepted. And there's also a precision to the King James Version. Now, some people complain about, you know, an expression we hear frequently is all these these and thous are hard to understand. But there's a reason they're used. For the most part, in the King James, ye and you is plural, and thee and thou 
is singular. We don't have that in our English language today. You can be singular or plural. But understanding that helps you to perceive what is meant by the, in the Bible. For example, Jesus said in John 3, speaking to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, speaking to one person, ye must be born again. He was speaking to one man, but the statement, you must be born again, was not just for one man. It was for everyone. I say unto thee, ye must be born again. What are some drawbacks of the King James? Well, it uses words that have been discontinued, words that we don't use anymore. Do you know what these words mean? You probably don't use them in your everyday language very much. What, implead, immerse, chambering, blames, when. You know, you read those, <laughs> what's it saying? I don't know. And the tendency is to just kind of skip over it and ignore it. So the King James does use words that have been discontinued. Furthermore, it uses words whose meanings have changed over the years. And that can be even more confusing because we think we know what it means. But when this was translated, that word meant something else. I'll give you a couple examples. The word prevent today means to keep. You keep something from happening. For example, um, if I would make the statement, I prevented my child in going to school, that means I didn't allow him to go to school. But in the 1600s, the word prevent typically meant to proceed, to go before. So if I'd say I prevented my child in going to school, it means I preceded him. I went to school before my child did. So when the Bible says we shall not prevent them which are asleep, or yeah, we shall not prevent them which are asleep, referring to the rapture, it doesn't mean that we're not going to hold them down. It means we're not going to go before them. The dead in Christ shall rise first. So prevent the meaning changed. And there's, there's other uh, examples as well. Um, for example, the word gay. You have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. If somebody has no idea of King James language, they read that verse, you know what ideas would come to their mind. Uh, they're not thinking of fancy clothing. They're thinking of something that pertains to homosexuals. So there's meanings that have changed. So that is some of the uh, disadvantages of the King James. Let's move on to another language or another uh, translation. The New King James, NKJV, was published in 1982. This was also published from the received text, the same text that the King James was. And some of the goals of this Bible, they had an effort to maintain the word-for-word translation. There was an effort to maintain the sentence structure used in the King James Version while replacing the archaic words. So they used a lot of the same techniques. They used the same text. They tried to maintain the sentence structure but they updated these words which are no longer used or which have a different meaning. And the editor's goal in the New King James Version said, we tried to use a selection of words, phrases, which are clear, but are so close to the King James Version that there is remarkable ease in listening to the reading of one while following along in the other. The, the two fit 
pretty closely together. They don't throw the order phrases and so forth around. This is the only modern version which uses the, uh, the received text other than the King James, which we don't consider a, a modern version. Some of the advantages of the New King James Version, it updates the punctuation. It uses poetic layout for biblical poetry. Rather than just having it written in common text, it uses a line-by-line you know, -line poetic layout. It also capitalizes pronouns referring to God, which uh, the King James does not do. Now, here's something I want you to note. I might refer to this a little bit later. The New King James Version was the effort of well over 100 men working together. It took them seven years to do this, and it cost them $4 million. It's a good translation, but there was a lot of investment, and because of that, it was copyrighted, as most modern translations are which means there are restrictions on how it can be used. Just kind of tuck that away. Rodney Yoder, in his book, makes this summary. The New King James Version does an exceptional job of keeping what is best from the King James while clarifying what has become obscure. For clarity, accuracy, and beauty, I like the New King James Version the best. And I could give it a high recommendation myself. Let's move on. We won't cover all of these for sake of time. Um, let's go to English Standard Version, known as ESV. This was published in 2001, so just about 20 years ago. Now, from here on, most of these uh, versions come from the Nestle Allen text. And the goal of the English Standard Version was to be to have a Bible that is more accurate than the NIV, more readable than the NASB, and one that uses the Nestle Allen text rather than the King James. It's fairly literal. You see the needle there. It's a, a fairly literal translation, although not quite as literal as the, the King James Version. And uh, just to skim over this pretty quickly, if... Uh, if you're looking for a modern translation other than the King James, I, I would highly recommend the New King James Version, but some people might say, well, that's just a makeover of the King James. I want something different. I want something that doesn't have King James in the title. Well, if that's what you're looking for, the ESV is one that personally I would probably give about the highest recommendation. It's fairly literal and... Uh, has, has a lot of, uh, of strengths. Let's move on to, um, let's go to the New International Version. This was published, there's a number of years here, I'll get to that. Um, for many of us, over the years, this has been kind of the go-to Bible if we want something other than the King James Version. I'm just curious, how many of you own a copy of the NIV Bible? Okay. Many of us do. For many years, that's kind of been the, uh, the go-to version. Within eight years after it was published, it became the best-selling English Bible. King James took about 100 years to be commonly accepted. 
and that status has continued. Uh, I bought a copy soon after it became available. I've used it a lot, and I've benefited from it a lot. Verses that brought on new meeting to me. However, I want you to notice something. You see these three dates here. The NIV was first published in 1978. Then in 2005, the publishers of the NIV wanted to update it. Instead of just having a new international version, they wanted to have a new, new international version. But calling it that would have been confusing, so they called it today's new international version. And in 2005, they published this. And one of the significant characteristics of this Bible is that it used, as much as possible, gender-neutral language, trying to avoid pronouns like he and him and man, words like man. And this Bible received an outburst of criticism to the point that the publishers discontinued today's New International Version, and in 2011, they published a new version which was somewhere between the original and the second. And they discontinued both of the earlier ones. So today, if you go to a store and buy an NIV, it will be the 2011 version. Now, if you go on Amazon somewhere, you can probably still find the 1978 version. But there is a difference. Two of you may have an NIV Bible that is not the same because one may have an older one and one may have a newer one. Now, this version leans pretty heavily towards the dynamic equivalence, gives more freedom to express thought. The editors, I'll, I'll share with you their concern or their, their goal. They expressed their goal is to be faithful to the intended meaning of the Bible writers. That's what the editors published. Now, I have a little bit of a problem with that. They're saying, we're going to give you what the Bible tried to give to you. We're going to tell you what the writers tried to tell you. We're going to give you the intended meaning. This has moved the translators to go beyond a formal word-for-word rendering because thought patterns differ from language to language. Accurate communication of the meaning depends upon frequent modifications in the language and so forth. So it gets pretty, um, pretty liberal in that aspect. Now, another thing I'm going to mention here is this aspect of gender neutrality, avoiding some of these gender-specific programs. Now, a lot of people, when they first hear this, including myself, put up some opposition, raises red flags in my mind. Oh, they're just trying to be, you know, fit into this gender-neutral society of today. And that, that uh, is a concerning um, thought. But which is better? I'm going to show you some verses here. Um, Revelation 3.20 in the King James Version, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and what's up with him and he with me. Well, what about the women? Is the invitation for them as well? Now, most of us would understand that generally in the Bible, man refers to mankind. It's all inclusive. And I think that was the intent of the King James Version. The NIV translates it, if anyone 
hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You see, it's inclusive. And I understand from my limited study that this may actually be closer to the original Greek using an inclusive term. Now, one thing that people have a problem with this, if there's any English teachers or grammar teachers here, I was taught in school, and I taught in school, that nouns and pronouns need to agree in number. If you have a singular noun, you have a singular pronoun, and the other way around. Notice here in the NIV, it says, if any one hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. <laughs> so this is improper English because you have a, a plural pronoun. So they use that to be all-inclusive. And that's one thing I think the King James tried to stick with uh, formal um, language. Let's move on. Uh, there's some other verses there. Let's go to the Amplified Bible. Uh, this is one that I did not have included when I first preached this message at Weavertown. And uh, it was probably one of the questions that was asked most frequently. Well, what about the Amplified? The Amplified uh, was first published in 1965, has some newer updates. And the Amplified attempts to be very literal, so that is good, but they also, I'm saying literal plus, the Amplified throws in lots of additional comments or clarifications to explain and for the most part, these are clearly designated with, uh, with parentheses and, and brackets and so forth so that you can tell. So they will translate it very literally, but then in parentheses, they will put in so, some additional thoughts. So you have the literal translation, but more of an explanation. So my uh, take on that is that the Amplified can be very valuable for study, but could be rather awkward for reading, especially public reading, because you get all of these different, um, different expressions in there. I'll give you an example. John 1, 1 and 2. Um, anything in brackets here is something that they added to clarify. Anything outside the brackets is a literal clarification. In the beginning, before all time, was the Word, Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God himself, he was continually existing in the beginning, co-eternally with God. So that can be valuable for study, but I don't recommend you would probably use it for public reading. <laughs> you could lose people pretty quickly. Um, I'll give you another example. Uh, John 1 verse 5, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That's a King James. ESV, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That gives two different, two different connotations, two different ideas. King James, the darkness, I get the idea the darkness did not understand it. It did not, it couldn't comprehend it. The darkness did not understand the light. Where from the ESV, I get the idea that the darkness has not overwhelmed the light, has not overtaken it, to which is correct. Well, what is interesting is that the Greek word used here can mean both of these things. You know how a word in English often has several different meanings. The Greek word can mean either one of those. 
It has not understood it or it has not overwhelmed it. So what does the Amplified do? The Amplified tries to include whatever it can mean. The light shines on in the darkness and the darkness did not understand it or overpower it or appropriate it or absorb it and is unreceptive to it. So it, it tries to include all of it. Um, it, can be, it can be helpful for study. I'd like to mention a few more things here because I think they're important. Years ago, the Living Bible was published. The Living Bible was a paraphrase. It was not a translation. There is a difference. A translation translates what the words mean. A paraphrase is simply somebody putting it into their own words. It was basically the work of a man who said, oh, this is how I would explain this verse, or in my words, this is what this verse means. It was a paraphrase. And in my opinion, when you're reading a paraphrase, you're not reading the Bible. If you want to read the Bible, don't read a paraphrase. Now, I'm not saying a paraphrase cannot be helpful to help you understand what someone else's perception is. But this was recognized, the Living Bible, the publishers recognized that people understood it as a paraphrase. So they tried to get away from that stigma by making it a little more literal, so they come up with what they call, instead of the Living Bible, the New Living Translation. And it's interesting, they actually put the word translation in the title so that you know it's not just a paraphrase, apparently. And uh, this, uh, 1996, this gets, even though it is a translation that uses the dynamic equivalence, it's, it's pretty much far off to the right in taking liberty to put things into its uh, own words. And they recognize, the publishers recognize that they translate entire thoughts into natural everyday English. So it is, uh, is very free in that and it's also one of the most gender neutral translations. I'm going to mention another one here, the message published in 2002. The message is on the Living Bible or the New Living Translation. I had it to the far right. Well, the message is kind of overboard in its uh, liberty to put things into common language. In their words, it changes the language of the Bible that God uses into the language of today that we use to gossip, to tell stories, to do business, to sing songs, and to talk to each other. So it just tries to bring God's word down to earth in, a, in an extreme way, an extremely casual tone. I'm going to read a verse from the message, and I wonder if any of you can tell me where it's from. This is the verse. Quote, Don't be flip with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. What verse did I read? Any idea? <laughs> Matthew 7, 6. Cast not your pearls before swine. Cast not your pearls before swine. This is, and in my impression, in writing this verse, they were doing exactly what they were telling you not to do. 
I'll read it again. Don't be flipped with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. Now, I'm going to make a note here. The translators of this Bible did not intend for it to be used by serious Bible readers. That was not their intention. They wanted to catch the attention of people who had never read the Bible before. And the publishers even recommend that the serious Bible reader get another Bible. So they're trying to appeal to people with no Bible exposure. So for you to read the message would be a little bit like a college student reading Dick and Jane stories. Okay, Dick and Jane stories are not intended for college students. They're intended to teach somebody how to read. So I don't think um, people of our heritage should find much use for the, the message. I'm, I know I'm, I'm getting late here, and I beg your pardon for that. I'm going to just mention one thing. They're talking about translations. There is a group of conservative Mennonites working on a new translation of the Bible. Traditional text Bible publishers, I'm not going to give a lot of information about it. If you want to get in contact with them, you can jot down some of this information. They have a newsletter, and uh, I have several of their newsletters here, and if you want to pick these up and take them home, you're welcome to do. I also have the Gospel of Mark, which is kind of a proof copy of their new translation. And one of their reasons for doing this, they acknowledged that the New King James Version is an excellent translation, said, but the problem is, it's copyrighted, you have to pay royalties, for mass distribution, it's expensive. We want something that is accurate, readable, with no copyright, that will be free to pass out, to use in any publication, to use on any billboard you want to, without any restrictions. So that's part of their purpose. Now, I'm going to move on to some personal perspectives. I said at the beginning I'm going to try to stay as objective as possible. And I'm making it clear that at this point I'm switching to the subjective. I am giving personal perspectives. You may not agree. That's fine. You have your perspective. But probably you want to know where I come out on some of these. A uh, couple, couple things here. I'll try to go over this quickly. Number one, personally... I highly encourage sticking with the King James Version for public reading in our circles. I made that comment at Weavertown, and occasionally someone will read from another, from another version, and that's probably the statement that I got the most favorable comments on afterwards from many people in the congregation. I wish we would hear that more frequently. I think it just um, gives a, a unity and... Um, able to, to stick together, I, I can appreciate that. I'm not saying you don't refer to other versions. I often will refer to a verse in a different version when I'm, when I'm preaching, but for public reading, I think um, the King James, or if you want another one, the King James Version works with it very closely. That's my first perspective. My second perspective, let's not get radical. I've read and listened to some statements that were simply ridiculous. People 
trying to defend their favorite version with arguments that made absolutely no sense at all. And some of it went overboard. So, so let's, not, um, let's not get too radical uh, with this. Number three, I encourage using alternate translations. They can be very helpful. I have, there, there's verses in the Bible today that mean to me what they do because I read them in a different version and it gave me a new perspective of those. And thirdly, by nature, we are lazy people. We like when other people do the work for us so we don't have to do it. And the same applies when it comes to reading the Bible. If somebody else can tell me what it means, sure, I'll accept that. We like the easiest route. Too often we are satisfied to read a very loosely translated version and just accept what someone else thinks without digging in and discovering for ourselves what it actually means. Let's not be lazy. A couple things in conclusion. Different versions can be very helpful. I already mentioned that. I could give examples. I won't. Number two, beware of cherry picking. What do I mean by that? You can go online. There's a number of websites. You can put in one verse, and you can read that verse in a dozen different versions right there. And there's a certain idea that I want to make, so I'm going to skim over that. Ah, this verse, yeah, that says what I want to say. So I'm going to use this version for that verse. Later on, I want to say something else, so I look for some version, some Bible somewhere that expresses that. That's what I'm calling cherry picking. Uh, beware of that. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick. That means it's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. God's word is alive, and God's word speaks today. Let God's word speak. Psalms 12, 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God preserved his word for us today. Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. I believe that we represent the most blessed people in all the earth. Now, you've heard that many times as it pertains to finances, as it pertains to opportunities. But I think there is no other language that has the wealth of study materials and translations and study guides available as what we have today. So my final challenge, to whom much is given, much shall be required. We have a lot at our fingertips. We should be the most scripturally literate, wisest, and best equipped spiritual army on this earth if we take seriously what we have. So my final challenge 
regardless of what version you choose to use, go beyond admiring it and defending it to applying it to your life and allowing it to control your life. Let's kneel for prayer. Thank you, God, for